Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. We're at the University of Melbourne Student Union International's Festival of Nations. It's an annual celebration of multiculturalism and diversity through food, music and dance here at the university. We're here to speak to Associate Professor of Anthropology and keen drummer Adrian Hearn from the School of Languages and Linguistics and his band The Sons of Mercury. The atmosphere is buzzing and of course the students are loving all of the delicious food and drink. Being foodies and music lovers, our reporters Dr Andy Horvath and Claudia Hooper took the opportunity to join in the festivities and find out a little bit more about Adrian Hearn, the band and his work. So how important is music in creating connections? Well, uh, the importance of music in creating connections, I think, is evident just with the three of us standing here. I'm Adrian, and I've grown up all over the world. Banga's from Cuba, Ting is from China, and if it wasn't for music, we wouldn't be standing here working together. So just in our group, Sons of Mercury, I think what we're trying to do is show those connections at a time when there's so much talk about how cultural differences can mean complications in a society. We're trying to show how they actually can bridge divides and bring people together. So I'd say music and connections go pretty well together. Where did the name Sons of Mercury come from? The name Sons of Mercury comes from an ancient tradition, the tradition of Mercury, which you probably know is the, the Roman version of the Greek god uh, Hermes. And uh, in the philosophy of Hermes, um, the messenger goes between different dimensions and different worlds to try to build an understanding between those different worlds. So that's what Sons of Mercury is all about. Um, the Mercury symbol is one that lives in, in Cuba with the figure Elegua. It's a, a god, uh, a tradition of spirituality, which also is a messenger that travels and goes between dimensions. So, uh, and similarly in China, the traditions that Ting spoke about on stage cross time and space. And here he is as a, a person who's come to live in Australia from China, and it's music that's brought him here. So Sons of Mercury tries to reflect that idea of movement and the passage of ideas as they cross borders. Of course, as Associate Professor of Anthropology, Adrian can't spend all his time on stage. So we joined him in his office in the School of Languages and Linguistics, aptly named Babel Building, to continue our chat. So as a professor of anthropology, what part of culture do you explore? I'm interested in the intersections between music, medicine and organic food. Uh, you might think of the three of them as connected uh, through the word healing, um, really traditional um, remedies and ways to improve livelihoods. So join the dots for us. Well-being is often experienced through music. So how does it connect to food and healing? Uh, some years ago when I did my PhD studies, I had the good fortune to go and live in Cuba for 
about uh, three years all up. Um, so that was partly as the PhD study and then a postdoc as well. And when I was in Cuba, that's when I saw this intersection come together for the first time. And this was a result of um, really traditional healing ceremonies where uh, people with uh, physical problems, psychological problems, sometimes even social or political problems, including, for instance, being sentenced to go to jail, you know, even something like that, would go to perform a, a kind of traditional healing ceremony uh, to try and improve their situation in some way. Now, this fascinated me, and I got to talking with the people who uh, run those types of uh, occasions and ceremonies, and they explained to me that um, the medicinal side of it comes in through the natural herbs and uh, plants that are used, um, sometimes with proven pharmaceutical properties, other times not yet proven. Um, and what they explained to me is that the music energizes the situation. It brings what they call a, a vibration to, um, to the, the local, to the context. And that vibration activates the healing properties of the plants and um, really brings everybody onto the same wavelength. And they do discuss it in terms of wavelength, frequency, and vibration. So that's how the three, you might say, come together. A lot of people listening to this will be nodding and going, yes, music, food, Shakespeare had a lot to say about it as well. It is the essence of being alive. But how does your research actually apply to the modern Western setting? Well, what we're doing at the moment um, in a team that I work with is uh, working with councils uh, around Melbourne, uh, around the Melbourne metropolitan area, the 30 um, councils, and uh, state government to formulate plans for improved food systems. So we, you know, at this point we're calling it food systems because the concept of food systems is useful for bringing in a range of factors around the production and consumption of food. Um, and so that work draws on the experience of team members who've worked in China, in Africa, in the Middle East, uh, in uh, Latin America, like myself. And what we're trying to do is formulate some best practices that seem to be working across different cities that we, um, that we work in. And then we formulate policy. We for just recently formulated a policy position paper that's gone out to all of the, uh, the councils to try to engage with them in their own formulations of improved uh, health and well-being, especially around food systems. It's funny, it's almost like the wisdom of history and certain cultures needs to be now made governance in local councils. There's a oddness about that. I think that's a good word for it, oddness. And the reason I think that's a good word is that I think we can all sort of say intuitively, yes, there are lessons in the past that could be revived. Uh, but on the other hand, what often happens is that lessons from the past are kind of co-opted and, um, you know, given sort of uh, symbolic lip service, but really the, the messages around those, um, those lessons are lost. And I'll give you an example. Um, organic food production, small-scale urban agriculture, this is something that's gone on for 5,000 years or more. Now, if you look at Melbourne real estate and the, uh, you know, the, the growing number of apartment blocks, and many of them with small community gardens in them, uh, they say on the websites uh, and the marketing for these places 
uh, that this is going to allow people to get in touch with nature, to revive a sense of connection with the earth, for example. Now, are they really going to experience some sort of wide, um, broad connection with the earth? And are there larger challenges around food sustainability, um, around land use going to be resolved by tiny urban plots inside a, an apartment block? Well, no, they're not. So this is one of the ways that history is co-opted and then um, kind of recycled and, um, in my sense, uh, really kind of abused. What are some of the misconceptions that the public have about anthropology or your particular field? Well, the, the question I get a lot, and I think anthropologists the world over get this, is, you know, um, so, you know, what kind of dinosaurs do you uh, dig up? <laughs> and, uh, you know, they're not wrong, actually, because there are three branches of anthropology, and, and one of them um, deals, one of them's called archaeology, and deals with exactly that. So they're not wrong that anthropologists do do that stuff. But there's also biological anthropology that looks at evolution of the human species, especially, uh, and also cultural or social anthropologists, and that's what I do. There are some Cuban drums in your office here. <laughs> Why have you got Cuban drums in your office? <laughs> <laughs> you sound like uh, my supervisor asking me, you know, what am I really doing? Well, <laughs> these drums um, are made by uh, actually somebody who lives in uh, or close to Brisbane, actually in Coffs Harbour, someone who's uh, studied the, the fabrication of Cuban drums and then has created these, um, these sort of wooden versions of them. You'll notice that they have no skins. There's six heads, drum heads, but they're made of wood. So these are a model of drums which normally would have skins on them, um, and they produce a, a different sound for that reason, and he was going for something original. Now, why are they in my office? Uh, because part of what I do is bring together cultural groups and music groups. We use these drums to practice. When we perform, we use those ones in the picture over there. And um, so it's kind of convenient to have them here since we often practice on campus. All right, go ahead, practice. Sure. Well, I'll play a rhythm. This is uh, a rhythm for um, uh, a principle, um, some people would say a deity, called Elegua. And Elegua is a deity of beginnings and endings. So usually when these drums are played, this is the first rhythm that gets played. about your Cuban drums? Sure. Well, for me, doing the PhD on um, religion in Cuba and the relationship of religion and, uh, to the government, to politics in a communist, uh, nominally communist uh, country, meant that I had to find an in. And being a musician, drumming was, was the best way into religious practice. So as part of that experience of integrating myself over years into those communities, I learned the drums and about their history. And what I learned is that these are not just drums. These are um, for the communities that practice them in Cuba. Um, they're really a, a system of conveying values. And you can kind of see that in the structure of them. There are three of them there. Uh, these are called bata drums, and they're from Nigeria in West Africa. Um, you might know that about um, 12 million people were brought forcibly from West Africa to Latin America and North America. 
um, mainly between 1750 and 1850, and two million of them went to Cuba, or brought to Cuba. They brought these drums with them from Nigeria. And so um, in that process, they uh, used the drums not just for having fun, but really to, for maintaining identity, culture, uh, and a set of values, as I say. So the structure of these drums, there are three of them, and uh, they relate to each other as a family unit. The biggest drum is called the Iya, which means mother in Yoruba. Uh, the second biggest drum there is called Itotele, which means uh, he who follows. So it's the son that follows the instructions of the mother, or um, it's supposed to follow them and can correspond, can have a conversation with the mother. And uh, then on top of those is the small drum, the Okonkolo, or some people call it Omele. Uh, omele means he or she who cries out above the others. And it's, it's like a baby in any family. You've got the mother and the son arguing, and you've got the baby crying on top. It's, it's, it's a similar thing. So when I was learning these, um, you know, you have to learn how to respond to the mother. That's the process. And my teacher taught me for many months and then sat me down one day and said, I'm going to test you. So we sat down and he said, take the totele, the one who responds. I'll take the iya and you respond to me. So I did just as he taught me for months. And I thought I did it quite well, but he, he looked disappointed and put the drum on the floor and sort of shook his head and said, Adrian, haven't you learned anything? Don't you know that you shouldn't reply to your mother until she's finished talking? And, uh, and so he was still doing his call to me when I, I sort of spoke over him. And I realized then that this wasn't just about music. This is a whole set of values that are bound up in these drums. And there are many other stories and lessons around them that kind of reflect similar social values. Um, and so it was, uh, that's something that's very much alive today in Cuba. It's a tradition from West Africa that's centuries old. Um, and it's, you walk down the streets of Havana or Santiago de Cuba today, the two biggest cities, and you hear the drums coming out of family windows, out of, uh, you know, you hear them echoing in the streets. This is a big part of um, to, uh, contemporary Cuban identity. So music really is a metaphor for being human. Well, I, you know, I think the connections between music and medicine, like we were talking about before, um, I think that really reflects a concern with human well-being. Yeah, so I, I think those, uh, those connections are really what... Um, present as well an opportunity for some quite profound learning and you might say research into um, how we might here in Melbourne try to take a more holistic perspective to our food systems, to our medicine systems and maybe to music. Professor Adrian, tell us about your Cuban project and DFAT. Yeah, uh, DFAT means the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Um, which is the branch of Australian government that deals with uh, our nation's international uh, relations. Since I've worked in Cuba, I've been fortunate that they've often called me when Cuba issues come up and um, DFAT's looking to engage Cuba in, in one way or another. Um, so there are two projects that probably stand out in the Cuba work. One was a, a medicine project in the Pacific Islands, uh, this was back when, um, towards the end of Stephen Smith's tenure as uh, foreign minister, he went to Cuba and um, uh, made an, a, a sort of informal agreement that Australia and Cuba should work together in the Pacific Islands. Now, the reason for that was that um, there were and are a number of Cuban doctors, quite a large number, working there already. 
um, as part of Cuba's foreign policy. They send doctors around the world. Uh, and furthermore, there are a large number of Pacific Island students that go to study medicine in Cuba because they get free scholarships to do that. Then they um, come back and uh, hopefully integrate into their workforces. Now, what we found or what DFAT found, uh, at this time it was OSAID actually, which is now within DFAT, um, OSAID uh, found that there wasn't uh, a lot of preparation for those doctors, newly trained when they arrived back, kind of trainee doctors. They wanted to become doctors, they wanted to practice, uh, but there was no clear pathway for them to um, get their credentials recognized, to get internships, to go on and specialize. Uh, and so a team was brought together to work with um, the government of Cuba to do visits to those islands and formulate a plan. And I still look at that project as something I'm really proud of because we did formulate a plan. Not all of it was taken up, but some of it was. For example, we got an internship program up and running uh, on the island of Kiribati, uh, which is uh, in the news now because, of course, the water levels are rising and people are having to be evacuated from parts of Kiribati. But um, that is uh, now a hub for training of doctors that come back to the Pacific Islands from Cuba, and they need to go through kind of local re, um, reintegration. Uh, having spent sometimes five, six, seven years in Cuba, uh, they speak Spanish now, they know the Cuban medical system, they're very well trained, but they don't know their own local uh, situation. So that's what the internship program does. We did that together with the Fiji School of Medicine that's now running that program. So that that was uh, something that I'm really proud of, that we achieved that. More recently, we did a, a trip to Cuba with um, the, um, well, who, the, the former Minister of Trade and Investment, Andrew Robb. Uh, this was, I think, last year. Uh, where we went to look for ways that Australia could engage. Now, the emphasis there was largely around kind of, um, you know, foreign investment and uh, agribusiness, some, some mining, that kind of thing. I, I personally was much more interested in the organic food space, and particularly because horticulture in Australia is a very strong industry. And it just seemed to me that production of fresh food and uh, fruits and vegetables, not just commodity crops, right, but local, locally produced for the local market, that that's a sector that really could benefit from engagement in both directions between Australia and Cuba. So that's how uh, the DFAT then went on to fund my current project in Cuba uh, to compare Melbourne and Havana and our food systems. So tell us about your band. Sure. Well, this um, the, I, I run a project called Sons of Mercury, S-U-N-S, Sons of Mercury. And the purpose of that project is to bring together different cultural traditions and try to build some sort of musical um, collaboration. Uh, I should mention that the Faculty of Arts and the school have supported this project, um, and we're building towards a collaboration with the Arts Centre Melbourne um, which uh, they're creating something very interesting called the Australian Music Vault. Now, that project already has some great material on European migration to Australia and how it has influenced Australian music, but they don't have or didn't have that much on more recent migration from developing countries. So we're working with them on that part through the Sons of Mercury project. Mm -hmm. 
After talking with Adrian, we were keen to get some insights from some of the other Sons of Mercury back at the festival. So I was wondering what it means for you to be able to play traditional music here in, in Australia. Oh, to play traditional music here in Australia, that's made me happy. I'm proud because Cuba is a small, a small island and have a big sound, just 11 million people there and little bit island. So in Australia, the people know about Cuban, traditional Cuban music through the uh, Bonavista Social Club, you know? Bonavista Social Club was the responsible to spice the Cuban, the traditional Cuban music. So by the way, um, music is connected to the people because Adrian explained to you before, he's from China and from Cuba. He knows for the music, he cannot, he cannot join, you know? I put it by example, my first time when I went to Japan, I worked for a workshop. So I say how I can communicate with them. I'm a Spanish speaker and English speaker. They are having speaking English and even Spanish. So when I in, so the, all the students waiting for me, just the sound, music is the only language, universe. You can join the people, doesn't matter which country you're coming from. Just the G minor, boom, you get the G minor, then it well, like me. Or you hit the congas, and hit the congas well. You hit the hit, kid drum, the same. So we have something in common, even we doesn't know what's just the first time we know each other, and we just on the same side, because we give you some sharing something to the world, you know, that's beautiful, that's amazing, I think. Can you tell me what it means to you to be able to share these instruments? I think, you know, I was born in China. Uh, I love music, so I learned traditional Chinese music. So after I migrated to Australia, I think I should share my culture with the people here, So which were Right, a like, act as, act, acting as a bridge, bring the people from a different nation. Uh, because, uh, you know, if, if I don't understand the language from Cuba, and he probably don't understand the Chinese, but we can communicate very easily through the music. We know each other, and now I'm more interesting, interested in the Cuba music, probably through my, through my involvement with the band, uh, you know, he probably interested, more interested with the Chinese music. So that's the connection. I think it's very good. So I think we will try to do that and do more. Yeah, do more. We should not perform in Cuba and yeah. in China. Yeah, that's a I'll get a bigger in China for you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks to the University of Melbourne Student Union International, Associate Professor Adrian Hearn and Rodolfo Hegevara Alpanga and Huang Zhenting from Sons of Mercury. And thanks to our reporters, Dr. Andy Horvath and Claudia Hooper. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on October 4th and 25th, 2017. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Audio engineering by Arch Cuthbertson. Co-production by Dr. Andy Horvath and Claudia Hooper. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2017, the University of Melbourne. I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. 
Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.